Welcome to episode 24 of That Classical Podcast. This time, Mussorgsky and Prokofiev. Hey! Moscow, Moscow, wirf die Gläser an die Wand, Russland ist ein schönes Land. Hello. My name's Chris Bland. My name's Kelly Harlock. And you're listening to episode 24 of That Classical Podcast. Yes, indeed you are. Chris, what have we got on the cards today? Well, today we're going to be talking about two composers, uh, Modest Mussorgsky. Try saying that (laughs) three times quickly. I won't. Modest Mussorgsky and Sergei Prokofiev. But before we get on with the episode, uh, we just want to say a massive thank you uh, once again to the Southbank Centre, who hosted us for a talk recently uh, all about Schubert. And thank you very much to everyone who came and watched. And uh, we really appreci- terrible jokes about bonking. <laughs> thank you. We appreciate you guys. They were the MVPs. Absolutely. So we're going to crack right on with the episode, wow. and we're going to start off with you talking about Modest Mussorgsky. Modest Mussorgsky. Which means it's time for... Yes, indeed. So, as our regular listeners will know, we now have to condense a composer's life and times and works down into 60 seconds. Or more or less, but mainly 60. No, 60. 60. Let's smash it. Oh, dear. Right. Mussorgsky, are you ready? No. Three, two, one. Modest Petrovich Mussorgsky was born on the 21st of March 1839 in Kerova, Russia, to a wealthy landowning family. He was surrounded by folk songs and fairy tales from peasants on his family's land, which influenced him throughout his life, and started learning piano from his mum at the age of six. He was pretty excellent, and when he was sent away to St. Petersburg, age 10, to prepare for military school, his dad also set him up with a music teacher. 1853, entered, entered cadet school at 13, was super strict and props when he started drinking because the director of the school encouraged oh, everyone no. to get gazeboed all the time. <laughs> 1856, graduated and joined a sick regiment, met Alexander Borodin. They became mates, and he started meeting a bunch of musical people who were impressed with his piano playing and kickstarted his musical life. Started studying music in depth with Mili Balakirev, uh, but stopped tried to pursue music as a career Halfway. resigned from job 1861 his family went bankrupt though forcing him back into a boring clock for the government he wrote loads of music uh, during the next four years but didn't finish anything because he was a bit crap when his mum died in a- uh, 1865 he fell into a cycle of terrible alcoholism and living in abject poverty but some of his music finally got published in 1866 which was nice uh, 1867 <laughs> finished out on Bull Mountain 1869 started working for the government again uh, started working on opera masterpiece Boris Godunov which premiered in 1874 he wrote pictures in an exhibition that year but things went good 1880 he got fired he got really sick suffered from epileptic fits because of, of the booze drifted away from friends and wound up pretty miserable Five, died in, on March 28 one. Wow, very nice. Was that so under time? That was uh, just about under time, yeah. Nailed it! <laughs> yeah. So our pal Modest liked oh, to drink what? or two. He, he liked a little tipple. I have to say... His life was particularly tragic. Oh. And when I, I was looking, you know, you and I, we know, we look for the bants. We look, we for, look the for the funny bits. When we do a little autobiography, but there isn't that much. <laughs> his life was relentlessly bad. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, he was a really cool guy and he, his family like set him up to be this sort of army officer. Mm. Um, and he had always had this kind of talent in music. He was a great pianist from mm. a young age. But he never really got trained in like larger forms. Aww. And that so, and he had he didn't really have much confidence in his ability, Aww. but he still was excellent. So yeah, you know what, poor poor old Mussorgsky. There's not actually that much to say because everything is like a little bit tragic. Okay. And he he was this, you know, he was an alcoholic. He did drift away from. He was part of the mighty handful. Yeah. Um, if you might remember that, he was mates with Borodin and Rimsky Korsakov mm. and, and those lads. Go back and listen to our episode on Rimsky Korsakov yes. and Borodin. <laughs> um, but you know, he kind of drifted apart from them and had a bit of a rough time. Suffered from epilepsy towards the end of his uh. life. Was a bit poor and now his grave is a bus stop <laughs> is the so. bus stop at least named after him <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> because, so, okay, he didn't actually oh, he wasn't laugh. buried no we should he wasn't buried in a bus stop at the time but he the great the sort of the gravesite was like expanded um after his death <laughs> but his grave 
I think he has a headstone in the sort of graveyard still, but the actual grave where he's buried is just a bus stop. So I wonder um, if people make pilgrimages there. Let us know. If, if we, not, let should we, we ask... take a that classical podcast <laughs> trip to the bus stop? Let's get on that bus. <laughs> okay. Um, but anyway, so you know what? Why don't we just dive into the first piece? Because I feel like Absolutely. we're gonna give we're gonna get a lot more background that way. Perfect. Smashed it. So. The first piece we're going to talk about today is from Pictures at an Exhibition. I like uh, it a lot. A Remembrance of Victor Hartman is the full name. Uh, and it's a suite of 10 pieces composed for the piano in 1874. Mm. It was a great year for Mussorgsky that year. He also Perfect. wrote Night and Ball about it. Yeah. So this set of pieces is generally considered his most kind of famous piano composition. Yes. But I actually really love the orchestrated version um, because he never orchestrated it himself, but mm. Ravel mm. orchestrated mm. it in 1922. Mm. Interesting. But we'll listen to that later. So, right, Mussorgsky wrote this set of pieces because, sadly, his friend Victor, who was sort of an artist and writer, died uh, in 1873. And whilst this kind of plunged Mussorgsky into sort of even deeper despair than he was already in, um, it inspired him to write a set of pieces based on several of Hartman's pictures. uh, Because his mates, after he died, had set up this memorial exhibition for Hartman. Mm. uh, And these pieces depict a kind of tour around the exhibition. Amazing. Isn't that really sweet? That's very nice, yeah. And the pictures are amazing. And I'll put them on Twitter. They're all these kind of bits of Russian folklore and sort of depicting monsters and weird, just weird scenes. Um, And at this point, the rest of the Mighty Handful had kind of gone their separate ways. They were all doing their own thing and they weren't that close anymore. And sadly, when Mussorgsky kind of showed them these pieces... They were quite puzzled. They were puzzled by like the novelty of them sure. and a bit bewildered because I think Mussorgsky, he didn't really adhere to any particular musical form. If something sounded good, he'd yeah, write it. Yeah. You know, if is the that, chord was is, nice, he'd do it. Is that due to him having that sort of lack of training? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which I actually think is great because I think it gives you a freedom. Yeah, for like sure, you're not for confined sure. to what sure. people expect you to write. Yeah, and yeah. I think, and you'll hear it is, it is amazing. But the sad thing was that... He was really excited about these pieces and he smashed them out in about a month, in like 20 days. He was like, yeah, this is going really well. And then he was like, guys, guys, and showed them to the rest of the the five. And they were like, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. And he was like, oh, you don't. And he just didn't publish them. He'd meant to publish them. He was really pleased with them. And then the rest of the the Mighty Anvil were like, nah. And so he didn't. Isn't that awful? Just back yourself, modest. For God's sake. Don't be so modest. (laughs) It was only a matter of time before the joke came. But anyway, so the piece that we're going to talk about today is uh, is the ninth piece, and it's the picture that Hartman did of the hut on hen's legs, Baba Yaga. Okay, right? That's what it's called. That sounds like a hut without much structural integrity. I'll tell you that for free. Uh, let me let me give you some background. So, in Russian folklore, Baba Yaga is this sort of ferocious-looking old crone, right? Story of my life. Um, <laughs> who has two sisters, also called Baba Yaga, which I just think is not That's an official confusing. way to, sure, to speak sure. to people. And she flies around in a massive mortar and wields a huge pestle. So, you know, if you need a seasoning, she's your gal. Right. Uh, uh, and, you know, if you run into her deep in the forest where she lives, she can help you out. You know, she could do you a solid or... She could just screw you over. You just oh, don't know. So she's, she's not bad all the time. Well, I don't know. She's like mainly a villain. Right. I mean, she's horrifying. Yeah, <laughs> Let's sure. just get that straight. But most importantly, Baba Yaga's house is a little hut, like a little Russian shed. Yeah. Uh, but instead of having like a normal foundation of like wood or concrete, it's two chicken's legs. What, only two? Yeah, just two. Like they're quite burly. They're like quite, <laughs> yeah. they're like tonk. <laughs> tonk. 
Chicken just, legs. Just normal sized chicken <laughs> legs, just like buckling under the weight of this heart. Oh, yeah. Um, but I'm going to, and again, I'll put the picture on Twitter because it okay. is amazing. Right. And so the piece is just sort of a depiction of Baba Yaga and this house. Mm. And I think it's wonderful. I can really, when I hear it, I sense this evil harpy flying around in a massive bowl. And I definitely hear the legs trotting around. So let's see. Let's see if you can hear them. All right, then. All right. like it a lot I'm a big fan of that but that was mainly Ravel's work right no it's not no have you you haven't even heard the piano version admittedly I've never heard the orchestral version the piano version is also that intense and great okay let me let me (laughs) break it down can I just (laughs) can I please I have a story I have a story um, because you know how I enjoy weird paths into classical music and discovering classical music in quite strange ways yeah can I tell you how I discovered this piece do I have a choice? No. So basically, right, this will betray my age. Back in the day, you know, when I was like seven, you know, you could rent videos from the library, mm. like cassette tape videos. And I remember being like seven years old and my mum and I were returning something and I would like hang around in the video section hoping to get something. And, you know, in the Wimbledon library, your little mermaids, your Beauty and the Beasts, they were never in stock. Do you right, know they're I mean? always you, gone. You had sure, to choose sure. from the dregs. And one day I saw this crusty dirty, dog-eared white videotape with a crocodile in sports gear on the front. And I was like, it's you. (laughs) You're the one for me. It turned out to be a film called Animal Olympics. Okay. (laughs) Animal Olympics, which was made in 1980. Okay. And it was made to like coincide with the Olympics in Moscow that year on American TV. But because America boycotted the Olympics that year because of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, (laughs) it never got shown. It was this huge flop. Oh my God. But it was basically a film about animals competing in their own Animal Olympics, right? (laughs) So you had like a German sausage dog who was a skier. You had a Japanese killer whale called Oh No No No, who was a swimmer. And a goat and a lioness who fell in love running a marathon. But my favourite was a mink from Russia yeah. who did floor gymnastics and danced to this song okay. on the piano. And it just stayed with me for life. It stayed with me for life. I mean, you're not kidding. That it's is like, a oh really, really niche way of hearing this piece. <laughs> I discovered it then and it's been it's I've just never forgotten it and also I cannot separate it from like a weasel doing gymnastics that's incredible in that has head. to be on YouTube somewhere it is on YouTube oh I'm my put god it on it's amazing this film would not get made today like absolutely <laughs> no way sweeping generalizations about all nationalities oh, but man. um you know what if you're bored and you've got a spare half hour check it out it is on YouTube but anyway lads that was the hot on hen's legs hope you enjoyed it Classical podcast. Next is Boris. It's a bit of bozzer. Boris Godunov. Who's he? He, okay, wait, let me break it down. This was the only opera that Mazolski actually finished, and it became 
a total jewel in the crown of opera, the opera crown, one might say, okay. in Russia. One might say and that. And it's one, <laughs> probably wouldn't though. Uh, so it was written between 1868 and 1873. And uh-huh. it's about a real life human realm czar called Boris. Right? Okay, was his surname Godunov? Yes, uh, and uh, he so he actually reigned in Russia from uh, 1508 to 1605, uh, and it's also about his arch nemesis, the false Dmitri. <gasps> so incredibly long story short, and this opera was actually based on a libretto by Alexander Pushkin, right? Mm. But incredibly long story short, Boris murdered the real nine-year-old Dmitri, who was like the youngest son of Ivan the Terrible, okay? Okay. And the heir to the throne. So right. like Boris was like, no, I want to be the Tsar. And actually a lot of people did want Boris to be the Tsar. Sure. So he murdered him. Okay. And became Tsar. And then things were sort of going all right, but there were like a couple of like famines and stuff. Cool. Um, and people started to kind of support Boris's enemies a little bit. And then one day a monk called Grigory was like, hey, I was born on the same day as Dmitri, the murdered nine-year-old, was born. I'm going to pretend to be him and I'm going to take the throne. Okay, Okay. yeah. Uh, Blah, blah, blah. Boris hears about this, has a bit of a mare and dies. (laughs) Oh, my God. That was easy. Google it. Uh, uh, Yeah, so basically... It is a great opera. It is a really good opera. And I was actually listening through it a couple of times this week. It's fantastic. Mm. Again, like, I think because Mazorkski ne- wasn't necessarily trained in stuff, he's just very free and everything's very mm. melodic. Mm. Like, it's not a horrible opera that kind of isn't, you can't sing along to. Sure. There are just really sure. lovely bits of it. That's very nice. Anyway, so Mazorkski finished the first version of this in 1870 and he presented it to the sort of committee of imperial theatres. And they were like, no way, do one. There's no strong female role. Check your privilege, Mussorgsky. <laughs> Check it. Check it. He knew that so, Imperial Russia was right? so feminist. Isn't that great? So Mussorgsky was like, okay. Uh, and he revised it and added a few ladies in there, added a little love, love story. Because there were literally no female characters like whatsoever. And then he finished it in 1872. And we don't know whether people really liked it after then either, but his mates kind of pulled together to put on a performance. Okay, that's good. They supported him on this one. Yeah, they did. And then by 1874, uh, it fully premiered in St. Petersburg. And it was a huge success. So today, we are going to hear an aria from the fourth act. It's in four acts. Mm -hmm. The second scene of the fourth act. And things are looking crap for Boris, okay? For Bosler. Bosler. Dimitri. Bogo. (laughs) Yes. So Dimitri, or rather Grigory the monk, who's pretending to be Dimitri, is kind of marching towards Moscow uh, to assume the throne. Yeah. And Bosler, Bogo, um, <laughs> is having a terrible time. Oh, he's having some visions. He's having some hallucinations of, you know, that time he murdered that child. Yeah, sure. So like, fair enough. <laughs> As you would. And the people are also in revolt. So things are, are, quite, are quite bad. And then suddenly, out of a crowd, an old, humble monk comes out. He's called Piman. Pyman. I don't know. It begins with a P. You say (laughs) Pyman. Let's call the whole thing off. Um, And it was actually the same monk who told Grigory um, about the murder of Dimitri and kind of gave him this kind of whole idea. Not on purpose, but he's the one talking about it. So this monk comes forward and he sings a song about his shepherd mate who was blind all his life and had a vision in which the murdered Dimitri said, Oi, come to me, grave. I'll sort you out. Right. Uh, and I, I, P.S. I'm the heir to the throne. <laughs> uh, and then the shepherd went to the grave and his sight came back. 
this is what the song is about. And then after this, Boris is like, that is irrefutable evidence that I murdered Dimitri. I'd better die. Which doesn't make any sense to me can because you... it wasn't mentioned in the song. You can, you can see why I have my feelings about opera. <laughs> Incontestable proof. Um, anyway, I don't understand. But then Bogo dies. Right. So this is the song kind of before that. It's a humble monk. Take it away, Peeman Pyman. Yeah, that was very nice, actually. Right? I know yeah. mostly it was just the intro, but I I really liked it. I thought yeah. it was lovely. It's good, it's good. Um, if you remember, also, Boris Godunov was one of the... Well, yeah, one of the things that Shostakovich referenced in his fifth symphony that we were talking about a few episodes back. Yeah! So, just to show how it was a real sort of, I'd say, jewel in the crown it of really Russian was. music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. No, it's a huge hit. Even now, it's always performed, like, quite regularly. Awesome. Do you have any other Mussorgsky recommendations? I do. You know, the main one I actually mentioned briefly earlier, he wrote Night on Bald Mountain, which yeah. I know that everyone will know. It's like, da, 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 da. Yeah. And if you've ever played Earthworm Jim. No! It is, no, look, it's it's uh. iconic. It's in a level in Earthworm Jim. Uh, you're going to love it. But that, so, that's a video game. Yeah, it's a video game uh. from like way back when. But anyway, so um, Night on Bald Mountain Please is great. Please someone rescue me. <laughs> Never. Someone help. Um, and he also wrote loads of lovely sonatas. Um, he started writing another opera called... God help me, Kovanschina, Kovanschina, but he didn't finish it. Uh, it's really good okay. though. You should listen to that. It's really, really beautiful. He also wrote these amazing choral Russian folk songs. Cool. In the, do you remember we played um, th- that folk song by Stravinsky mm. uh, with all the like man with the fleas and all that stuff? Uh, it really reminds me of those. They are absolutely stunning, and I'll definitely link them on the old Spotify playlist as you well. You better. You're gonna love them. But yeah, uh, those are my recommendations. If you guys think I should listen to anything else, uh, please let me know. But that is Mazorgsky. Done. Oh, that glass and podcast. Now it's my turn. Congratulations. So I'm going to be talking to you today about Sergei Prokofiev. Sergei. Mm-hmm. Sergei, mm-hmm. who is pretty well known, I'd say. He's one of the big figures alongside people like Shostakovich nice. of 20th century Russian music. Nice. Uh, should we crack straight on with the, the old 60 second show? Absolutely, yes. Are you ready? Ooh. Are you steady? Woo! Sergei Prokofiev, born 1891, died in 1953. Grew up with a musical mother. He wrote his first piece at age five, avoided all the black notes because he only wanted to play the white notes. Uh, started studying with composer Glier, age 11, composing with distant harmonies and weird time signatures already. Parents are unsure about him being a musician, wanted to send to a Moscow high school, but he settled on St. Petersburg Conservatory. Uh, he was several years younger than all his classmates, very annoying and arrogant, and kept statistics on all their errors. Uh, he graduates, is a big dog in the St. Petersburg music scene, finishes the conservatory in 1914 by winning a battle of the pianos, like a battle of the bands. Uh, he becomes mates with Diaghilev, World War One. he studies the organ to avoid conscription to the army, May 19- 
2018 he heads to the US various reasons means he runs out of money so 1920 goes to Paris uh, hangs out with Diaghilev some more has some beef with Stravinsky to Germany 1922 then back to Paris uh, 1927 goes back to Russia hangs out a bit moves back there permanently 1936 obviously has to adapt his writing to Soviet tastes but still producing cool stuff like Roman Juliet during the war restrictions on composition style were loosened he keeps his head down keeps writing uh, becomes one of the leading composers of the Soviet Union but then gets denounced 1948 uh, or he has lots of problems died on the same day as Stalin in 1953 whoa there pickle wow so there was a bit a bit towards the end that I had to what an absolute twat like a keeping a keeping records of all his classmates errors yeah so did he have any friends not while he was at school no because he was because he was a few years younger than everyone else and so he was you know keeping tabs on everyone what a little shit (laughs) but anyway once he was an adult he became pretty famous pretty well known (laughs) so when he did move back to russia in 1936 Mm. obviously uh as we mentioned before the uh, overwhelming taste well I say taste the, the state mandated style of writing yes. <laughs> was uh, socialist realism and that sort of meant that his writing had to be a lot less sort of dissonant and uh, avant-garde than it had been while he was in the West Okay, and in fact in 1948 so this is post-war peak Soviet Union time, Mm. uh, he and a bunch of other composers, including Shostakovich, like we talked about previously, uh, were denounced by the state for formalism. And so eight of his works were banned from all performance. And so this meant he went into a huge amount of debt. um, And unfortunately, coincided with lots of health problems. So he tried to, like, write pieces to get back into public life. And everyone was like, nah, mate. So he, (laughs) he pulled back from public life. Still composed, but never attained the sort of heights of celebrity that he had at his peak. Is his grave also a bus stop now? No, it's not. <laughs> okay, well, uh, he's doing all right then. <laughs> but he did he did die on the same day as Joseph Stalin, <laughs> okay. which meant... And his apartment was really close to the Red Square, so it meant they couldn't get his body out of the apartment <gasps> for three days because of all the crowds Stinky. thronging around. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, no. And in the main Soviet sort of musical paper, the periodical... Uh, the first 115 pages were devoted to Stalin. Oh, and Prokofiev got a mention on page 116. <laughs> oh, no. Lucky 116. Yeah, so he fell out oh, of favour a little bit. Poor guy. Yeah. So anyway, first of all, we'll talk about some happier times Good. when he was beloved Love it. By, the, by the old Soviets. Right. So the first piece we're going to talk about is one that he wrote in 1936 mm-hmm. and is called Peter and the Wolf. <gasps> Nice, yes, iconic, yeah. It's super iconic. Amazing. Um, So this is one that he wrote specifically for children. So it was commissioned by a woman called Natalia Satz, who is the as the director of the Central Children's Theatre. Okay. Uh, so it's a symphonic fairy tale for narrator and orchestra, basically. Mm-hmm. There, there are famous versions without a narrator. Uh, amazingly, when I was researching it, there's a version... Uh, it won a Grammy. David recorded Bowie. there. There is the David, David Bowie version. Sting. They're the best versions in the world. However, have you heard the version narrated by Mikhail Gorbachev and Bill Clinton, <laughs> and also Sophia Loren? And then also they re-recorded that same thing, and instead of Gorbachev and Bill Clinton, they got Antonio Banderas. <gasps> yes. Oh, I'd love that sexy Peter in the world. And they won a Grammy for this Gorbachev-Clinton narration. I don't want to hear Gorbachev narrating anything. Weird. Oh my Super God. weird. 
Okay, I recommend Bowie's version. It's lovely <laughs> and stinks. Anyway, keep going. Anyway, so this piece lacks the, as I've mentioned before, the, the dissonance and the satire of the works that he wrote while he was in the West, which sort of goes to show the huge amount of influence that politics exerted on creativity in the Soviet Union yeah. around that time. Crikey. So the actual story is very Soviet in nature. So Peter is actually a young pioneer, which is the sort of USSR version of like the Boy Scouts. Mm. Um, so he's very brave. It's about the triumph of man over nature, how he captures the wolf. Yes. And also his how he stands up to like the fuddy-duddy older generation. Yeah, sure, because his grandpa. Because his grandpa yeah. is like... Rah, 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 rah. Nice. But Peter is the young, brave, shiny face of communism. Mm. And because oh, there was... The, the view at the time was that the older generation being generally non-Bolshevik Mm -hmm. were sort of to be ignored and cast aside for the upwardly thrusting young youth. (laughs) Upwardly Uh, thrusting. Upwardly thrusting young youth. That's what I said and I stand by it. (laughs) Okay. So we're going to listen to it now. uh, And it's because it's written for children, it's sort of very clearly laid out. So the strings, you'll hear the main theme is Peter, the horns represent the wolf, the flute represents the bird, the clarinet is the cat, the oboe is the... The duck! The, is My favourite, yeah. Okay, great. Uh, the bassoon is Peter's grandpa and like the timpani and the bass drum is the shots of the huntsman. So, so let's have a listen. Yes! Early one morning, Peter opened the gate and went out into the big green meadow. I am deeply saddened by the fact that was not Gorbachev's version. <laughs> <Very> <laughs> and I will make that. it my life's mission to listen to that the whole way through. But yeah, isn't that great? I love it. It's lovely. Um, I'm going to undercut the happiness of it, though, with... Uh... Good. <laughs> so, Stalin, I'm, I'm not afraid to say it, kind of a dick, <laughs> frankly. Controversial. Yeah. So, nice. Natalia Satz, if you remember, she was the director who commissioned it. Right. And so she was to be the the narrator of it. But by the time the... So it had been played in Europe a couple of times. By the time of the American premiere in 1938, uh, she was in a gulag after her lover, who's a guy named Mikhail Tukhachevsky, who was a, like a Soviet military hero, mm. but got denounced and, and shot for some reason. Oh, my god! And so because she was going out with him, she got sent to a gulag. Oh, my god. Yeah. And that's why she couldn't narrate Peter and the Wolf. And so that's the kind of uh, environment they're operating in. There's also the following year, 1939, the first opera that Prokofiev wrote while he was in the Soviet Union uh, was called Semyon Kotkom. And the director of this, again, uh, a guy named Zevolod Meyerhold. Uh, great yeah, name. great name, but he was um, arrested and murdered by the state, which postponed the premiere. Is what it's <laughs> yeah, a small really. damper on that. Yeah, um, yeah, oh and then gosh. months after, Prokofiev was quote invited to compose to a gulag, no, <laughs> right. to compose a cantata for uh, 
Stalin's 60th birthday. I read about that. Oh my god. Yeah, so it's god. called Zdravitsa, which yeah. means cheers, and also known as Hail to Stalin. So yeah, that's the sort of environment he's operating in where it's like, yeah, cool, we're gonna murder everyone around you, but also now you have to write this thing happy, praising Stalin. Happy birthday. Uh, let's put that on the Spotify playlist for some <laughs> horrific yeah. uh, extra listening. Uh, so yeah, that's a nice little nugget I found out today that's ruined the piece forever oh, for me. that's awful, isn't it? Uh, oh no, yeah, it's not as happy now. No. I mean, it's still a lovely piece. Though. But still, it's still very nice. It's, <laughs> it's still lovely, and like I, do you know what? Every actor and his or her dog has narrated Peter and the Wolf at some point. So yeah. if you guys find any great versions, please tell us. Like, if you can love beat Bill know. Clinton, let us know. podcast. So the next piece that I'm going to talk to you about is. Piano Concerto number three. What a banger. Absolute banger. Mm-hmm. So this was completed in 1921, i.e. while he was living in the West. So okay. you might be able to hear from it that it's a little bit uh, more experimental, okay. maybe. It's a bit more a little, free. There's, there's more sort of dissonance and mm-hmm. cool stuff going on. Excellent. Uh, so he finished this, as I said, in 1921 uh, while he was on his holes in Holly Brittany, Bobs. in mm-hmm. France. Lovely. Um, after sketches that he started as early as 1913. So it's something that he was like turning over in his head and working on and he'd mm-hmm. repurposed material from just various sketches he'd wrote from a string quartet that he then later scrapped mm-hmm. and used the themes You're from using that. the term sketches here in terms of like manuscripts. Oh yeah, yeah as in just write. like musical just thoughts. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so this is a really cool combo of lots of Prokofiev's signature compositional styles. So there's lots of uh, diatonic melodies, which is broadly speaking where the melody follows the harmony and it's sort of and like an obvious fit between the melody okay. and the harmony. Fine. But also there's lots of dissonance, there's lots of clashing, and lots of harmonic interest because of that. Uh, there's a lot of like rhythmic propulsion behind it. It's really, really quite a it. thrilling piece. Uh, <laughs> what a thrill! <laughs> no, it really is. Uh, it's the most widely played of his uh, piano concerti. Okay. Uh, by far one of the sort of cornerstones of piano repertoire, I'd say. Uh, and Prokofiev's <laughs> recording, which unfortunately we can't listen to today, is the first recording made of the piano concerto, and in fact the only existing recording we have of Prokofiev playing one of his own piano concertos. That sounds sick. Yeah. Oh, can we put that on social media? Absolutely. Amazing. But for now, let's listen to this version of Prokofiev piano concerto number three. Let's do it. might be one of my favourite pieces of all time. Pieces full stop, yeah. not just piano I, I pieces. I love that piece. Same, it I really, really like just it. just so good. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I totally agree. And so one of the things about this is not only does it sound really cool, it's just an incredible virtuoso showpiece for the piano player. Mm. Uh, so in the final movement, uh, it builds up to this mad crescendo 
And as far as I know that I've been able to find, it's the only piece in the whole of the piano repertoire that asks you to play two notes at the same time with one finger, which is sort oh. of... I'm not a piano player, so I don't they know this. next but to each other, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is, yeah, like, like, apparently totally antithetical to everything you're ever taught about how to play the piano. You're right, meant to, yeah. like, hit it right in the centre of the key. Nice. But so he does this thing, which is like... So a glissando is where you just, like, slide your hand up the keyboard so it goes... Yeah. But what this is instead is just like a really quick passage that sounds like a glissando, but to play it correctly, you need to like go up so quickly that you're pressing like two keys at the same with, time with, with a finger. With each finger? Yeah. That's when you go up. It's, it's nuts. Yeah. Do you know what? That, I mean, that's amazing. And also, I, I love that piece and I love Prokofiev generally because I find his compositions really cinematic and it's mm. b- probably because he wrote for films. He did, did for you, a bit, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Mm. And it's like... It's so epic. Everything is so epic. Um, and these, I just imagine these amazing scenes behind everything, and I'm sure yeah. he was as well. Yeah. But, I mean, that is what an amazing piece. It's, it's just great. Anything you'd like to recommend to us to listen to as well? Oh, yeah. So he wrote some wonderful piano sonatas called the War Sonatas, uh, which mm. are numbers six to eight, I think. We'll fact check that and tweet the right amount. Yeah, so they're incredible. Uh, he wrote two violin concertos. Both of those are amazing. I prefer number one. Some people prefer number two. <laughs> his other his other piano concerti are incredible as well. So number three is the most commonly performed one, but number two is amazing as well. And lest we forget, Prokofiev wrote Romeo and Juliet, the ballet. Oh my god, of course. On the Apprentice. That is Romeo <laughs> and Juliet. Prokofiev. That is Prokofiev. It's called Dance of the Nights. Uh, and the rest of Romeo and Juliet is is really fantastic as yeah. well. He yeah. also wrote Cinderella, which is really God, fantastic. Of he did. It's absolutely yeah, yeah. bloody brilliant Cinderella. And he's, he's just um, written a whole bunch of stuff. My favourite, my new favourite piece by Prokofiev, <laughs> it does change, is um the classical symphony, Symphony Number no. One. One of the movements is called Larghetto, and there's just a f- like twenty seconds of it which destroy me like absolutely <laughs> destroy me and i will put it on the playlist amazing. it's amazing definitely check that one out Sweet. but yeah prokofiev th- there's so many things to listen uh, to you will not get bored he's absolutely fantastic amazing yeah. done done Bad classical podcast. so that was our episode on mazorksky and prokofiev we hope yeah, you enjoyed buddy. it uh, before we go We'd just like to let you guys know, we're going to open up the floor to (laughs) questions uh, from now on. If you have any questions for us at all about orchestras, classical music, about us, Us, uh, about podcasting or anything at all that you'd like us to answer in the next episode or whenever. We want to do a little Q&A with you guys. We'd love to. So please like tweet us or DM us or whatever um, and we'll sort that out. There are, in fact, many ways of getting in touch with us to ask us all those burning questions you have. Uh, You can find us on Twitter. We're at That Classical. You can find us on Facebook. Just search for that classical podcast we're on instagram uh at that classical insta you can email us that classical email mm-hmm. at gmail.com mm-hmm. there's just a whole load of ways you can get in touch with us yes, we've got indeed. a spotify playlist yes. uh, where we list all of the songs we play on the episode and ones inspired by it or around it mm-hmm. always a good listen indeed. and lastly if you wonderful wonderful listeners wouldn't mind if you could go on itunes and leave us maybe a little review on there that'd a be very nice five star that would be great But otherwise, we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.